All right. Well, um, so tonight we're, I think we're technically tonight wrapping up a, a series, if you can call it that. We normally just go through the lectionary text each week, but we've spent a few weeks now uh, talking about um, our church practices, about why we do the things that we do. And uh, tonight, uh, uh, the plan was to finish by talking about why we specifically do the things that we do in this room each week. Uh, each week we come in and you've, you've noticed that we've got kind of our own liturgy here, right? Depending on what tradition you grew up in, uh, maybe your church did things differently, but we have certain things that we practice each week in this room. Uh, and I was tempted to just kind of walk through each thing and talk about it, but I feel like that would have been a little bit weird and or redundant um, because it covers so much of what we've already talked about. Uh, and we have already talked about the importance of community. We've already talked about worship in general and what it means and doesn't mean. We've talked about why it's important to be here on, on a week-to-week basis, uh, what gathering uh, is for and why that's important to us. Uh, but I do want to talk about why we do the things we do in this room each week. Uh, and I know if you come a lot or if you've been here a long time, it's easy just to kind of, this is what we do and we don't think about it and it just kind of becomes second nature. And, and honestly, there's something kind of beautiful about that. It's kind of like the breathing in and out where you're not thinking about it, but it can give you life anyways. But I want to take a moment uh, to be intentional about thinking about why we purposefully do these things. And uh, I'll let you, I'll, I'll show our cards tonight, which is I'll let you know where we kind of get it from and have from the very beginning of things 14 plus years ago. And, uh, and it actually comes from, I, th- I think, probably day one of the first worship class I took in seminary, which was an entire class for a semester that talked about kind of the history of worship and different traditions and why they do what they do and where it comes from and all these kind of things, stuff that would probably bore a lot of you, but was eminently interesting to me. And uh, my favorite professor, uh, Dr. Duke was his name, uh, taught that class. And one of the first things he did was open up the Bible and go to Isaiah chapter 6 and talk through the calling of Isaiah and how uh, that provided kind of a template for what it means to try and encounter God. Uh, and and he, he thought about that, and, and I uh, have run with that and really liked that idea that this uh, passage can be kind of a template for how we try to meet God on a week-to-week basis. Um, if you've been here for very long, you've heard us talk about this passage at some point because it's an important part of why we do what we do. But I want to talk about kind of five scenes or, or five acts in the play, if you want to think about it that way, that we go through each week. Let's read the passage again, and then we'll talk more about it. Again, this is from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It is about Isaiah being called as a prophet. It's a vision that Isaiah has that is his way of being called and sent out. And it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So these are, you know, kind of mystical, angelic creatures uh, probably not as cute as anything that you'd see like in a Precious Moments Bible or anything uh, since they got six wings and they're you know, yelling these things out or whatever, but here they are, these angelic creatures. And they're calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. So you have the spectacular scene of Isaiah encountering the God, right? And, and, the, and the awesomeness of this picture and, and what happens when you see God for who God is. And normally I would spend, let's be honest, three to five weeks probably talking about these things because I like to talk a lot and I, and I love this verse. But tonight I want to run through it. And, I, and I've said this last couple of weeks and it's true this week too. I, I'm going to fit about five sermons into one here, but I promise not to go that long. But I want to take kind of a 10,000 foot view of this and think again about the five scenes, the five movements that we find in Isaiah's calling and that we attempt to move through each week. And here's the five. that I, Here's how I'm going to phrase them. There is a God. It is not me. I am not alone. There is redemption. And we have omission. There is a God. It is not me. I am not alone. There is redemption. And there is a mission. This is the five-act play we reenact every time we get together in this room. So let's, let's talk through all, all, all five of these acts, right? First act, there is a God. This is the Lord high and lifted up. This is the uplifting of God, the seeing, the seeing of God for who God really is. This is awe, this is mystery, this is having your breath taken away. This is the filling of the temple with just the robe of God. It's the threshold shaking and the seraphim yelling out to one another and causing the room to shake. It's, it's being filled with smoke. It's holy, holy, holy. Right? This is praise, this is awe, this is reverence, this is mystery. This is the breathtaking realization that there is a creator of all things a creator of all of time, a God high and lifted up. It is God in God's place. There is a God. There is a first mover. There is someone who set all of this in motion. That's the first act. And the second act is what I believe is the inevitable result of having a genuine recognition of the God of the universe, a God in God's place. The second act is the inevitable result. And the second act is there is a God and it's not me. Woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips. This is standing in the presence of someone so other that I pale in comparison, that I see myself in a completely different light because of it. Woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips. This is confession. This is the honest assessment of who I really am. This is the humble realization of who I am in the light of who God is. This is the confession that I need help. This is the confession that I can't do it on my own. And this act would be deeply bad news if it were not for the fact that there is a God. 
And that God is loving and that God is good. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. On its own, this is a tragedy if it doesn't have the other scenes. And this stands in opposition to the world, what I feel like, at least in our culture, is this constant chorus of life hacks and unfettered self-determination that we can all just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can all do this on our own. This is an acknowledgement that at the end, my best efforts, which are good, which are important, which I encourage you to do, but even at the end, my best efforts, I am not my own God. This would be the acknowledgement uh, I, I, I would think the way they would probably phrase this in like a, maybe a, a recovery program, this is the acknowledgement of the need of a higher power, right? I need help. I am not God. I need help and there's no reason to pretend otherwise. There is a God. It is not me. And thirdly, I am not alone in this. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am in the same boat as everyone else, which is good news and bad news, right? My weakness, my struggle, my, um, all these things are not particular to me. We all suffer from the same illness. We all have missed the same boat. Maybe it's a better way of saying that we're all in the same boat, right? I am not worse than you. I am not better than you. I am part of a community of strugglers. Left to ourselves, we are in bad shape but I am not alone in this and that means something we don't have to be perfect to take comfort in the fact that we are not alone there is a God it is not me I am not alone and the fourth act is there is redemption there is hope, there is healing the seraphim flies with the coal, touches it to his lips, and he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sins atone for. Yes, you are a man of unclean lips. Yes, you live among a people of unclean lips, but that is not the end of the story. Yes, you fall short. But that doesn't get the final word. God loves us as we are, but God loves us too much to leave us as we are. The God who is high and lifted up, the God who has every reason or every, uh, is entitled to not think about us or not care about us does in fact love us, does in fact care about us, is a God who is love, a God of salvation and a God of redemption. Our guilt, our shortcomings, whatever failures we might have are not the end of our story. There is healing, there is redemption, there is reconciliation with the God of the universe and to each other. This is the belief that God can and will do something with the problem that is us. But the story doesn't even end there. It doesn't even end with the good news for us, with, which, with our good news that there's forgiveness and I can be reconciled to God and there can be salvation for me. That is not the end of the story. Finally, in the fifth and final act, God sends the redeemed into the world to tell the good story. There is a mission. Who will go? Here I am, send me, right? We are sent. There is a mission. There is something for us to do in this world. Our lives serve a purpose in this world. The beauty of a good and loving God that forgives and redeems is not just a story of my salvation, my escape plan from this world as it burns behind me. I am here to do something. 
to say something, to be something in this world. We are here to help build a better kingdom, to help tell a better story. Five scenes, five acts. There is a God, it is not us, we are not alone, there is redemption, and we have a mission. It may be a bit of an oversimplification, but that is what we try to do each week in this room. Every part of what we do in here each week is attempt to try and retell the story over and over and over again as it slowly and hopefully, eventually, methodically becomes our story. This is why we do the things we do in here each week. Each week in this room, in my opinion, we have done what we have intended to do if we give time and attention to each of these acts. Now, now keep in mind, I, I'm not saying that we um, go through these in order. We don't go step one, two, three, four, five in order. We don't cover all of them to the same amount. It's not that clearly delineated. But there should be, if we're doing what we're supposed to do, there should be echoes of each of these acts found throughout our time in here together. And we have intentionally chosen the elements and the order of all these things that we do each week to try to tell this story. To say, again, that there is a God, to uplift the God of the universe, right? This is found all throughout our service in here each week. It is part of our prayer. It is the hallowed be thy name. It is the songs that we sing that somehow mystically usher us into a sense of something bigger and greater than ourselves, even though it's just words and notes on a page and a band playing and us singing along. Something bigger happens. It's in the stories and in the scripture readings that we are struggling to understand, that we can't quite wrap our minds around, that we don't entirely know what they mean all the time because they put something in front of us that so far goes beyond our common knowledge and challenges the way we look at ourselves in the world. This is all an uplifting of God. If we leave this room on a week-to-week basis without being reminded that there is a God, a creator of all things, someone bigger, better, more, more incredible than we can conceive of, then we have missed something. We have uh, caged the Lion of Judah, right? We have boxed God in. Now keep in mind, this is not a natural move for us. We like to be in control of things. We like to be able to manage things. We like to have full understanding. We like to feel like we know more than we actually do and we're in control of more than we actually are. We don't like to believe in things that we can't understand and wrap our heads and minds and hearts around, right? I mean, do we need any more evidence in the last year and a half that we struggle with anything that's a little bit mysterious and that we don't know how to control? I had a conversation with someone this week that was very upset with me that I have gotten the vaccine. And they were upset with me because they had done their research on YouTube and it was created by the same person that had created AIDS. And because I'm a good Christian and I'm pastoral, And it was said to me with such supreme confidence, I immediately sent a sarcastic text to my wife about how idiotic this idea was. Right? And they explained it to me in a way that violated all rules of logic and all rules of science because, again, they had done their own research on YouTube and that, of course, is the source of all true knowledge. 
And I, and I spent the rest of the day uh, just, having, just, just trying to wrap my mind around how someone who knew so little about something could pretend like they understood it. And then I'm preparing for the sermon and I realize I have exactly that same impulse all the time. Now, I may be willing to allow doctors uh, to tell me what to do in regards to, you know, medical advice. Because the truth is, like, I don't even know how this works right here, what I'm doing. I'm like a newborn baby. I, don't, I really don't understand this. So I'm going to leave that to some experts, okay? But I have the same impulse. I don't care for awe. I don't care for mystery. I don't care for the vulnerability it brings. I want to have mastery or at least the illusion of it. And if you for a second think that I don't have a temptation towards false confidence and a temptation to pretend like I know something I don't, every week when I write a sermon, you don't understand what sermon writing is like. We all struggle with this. And in a world of people who confidently believe that they have mastery over everything that they do not, we come into this room and we try not to make that mistake with God. We lift God up. We don't pretend to have all the answers. We say, I don't know. We leave blanks where we don't know how to fill them. We leave space for mystery and for all. We remember there is a God. And after we remember there is a God, we are keenly reminded that it is not us. I am a man of unclean lips. And each week we try to wrestle with that reality of our own brokenness, of our own need. We do this in our prayers. We, do, we tell the truth about ourselves in our confessions, in our prayers, in the sermons. I hope we do that, right? We tell this truth when we don't read ourselves as the heroes in Scripture, but instead of those who are in need of God's healing and God's grace. We tell this story when we pretend as a church, uh, we don't pretend as a church to have all the answers or make an idol out of our institution or our theology or anything else that we feel like we have control over. And we get comfortable with the fact that we don't know everything. We tell this story, we act this part of the play out every time we approach others humbly and without judgment, which I hope we do. Because there is a God and it is not us. But that's not the end of the story. We come into this room because we are not alone. We are a people of unclean lips. We are all in the same boat or again have missed the same boat. And we act this out each week when we share our stories honestly. When we give ourselves to community authentically. When we acknowledge that our lives are inextricably connected to each other. When we just show up and sit together in this room. We remind each other every week that we are not alone. When we pray to the Our Father. When we talk until the service starts a few minutes late every week, and you may say, Mike is just really bad at reading time. No, that's part of church. I really believe that's as important as starting on time. Because I don't know about you, but every week I like the reminder in those conversations that I'm not alone. 
when we ask for the community to pray on our behalf each week for things that we can't control, we confess again to the community that we are among a people. We are not alone. Again, we pray the Our Father, when we sing as a choir instead of just sitting and watching a performance, when we take communion together, when we pass to others the peace of God, everything we do in this room is a reminder of community, is a reminder that we are not alone. It reminds us of the good news that we don't face this by ourselves, that our faith may be very personal, but it is never private. There is a God. It is not me. I am not alone. And there is redemption. The God that we have is a God of love and of grace and of forgiveness. Our sins are atoned for. Our guilt is taken away. And we act this out every week in the stories we tell, in the prayers we pray, in the songs we sing, in the stories we uh, read in Scripture of healing. Whenever we meet and eat at the communion table, we celebrate the forgiveness and grace of God. It is the story we tell when we build deep friendships of trust and care with each other, in spite of the risks that are inherent in that. It's a story that, yes, I am broken. Yes, we are broken. We are messy. We are prone to wander. But I will trust you. I will trust you with my story. I will trust you with my friendship and my trust. I will trust you with my children when we go back there to teach them at night. I will trust you with my fragile and authentic self. Because there is grace and redemption for us all. There is a God. It is not me. I am not alone. There is redemption. And finally, we, each week we tell the story that we are sent, that there is a mission, that there is work to be done. We tell this story through all the announcements when we're talking about the things we're going to go out in this community and do. We tell the story whenever we serve together, whenever we allow the scriptures to challenge us with what now. Whenever we give generously of our time and our money to the common work we have agreed to do, every time we do these things, we remind ourselves that we are in a community that is called to something larger in this world. That our common work, our common love, and our common giving is for the benefit of those who are not here and who may not know the good story that we have to tell. We exist to try and change and heal the little slice of this world that we have access to and have been entrusted with, however small or large that might be, to go into this world and to tell our neighbors a better story and to build a kingdom that lasts. There is a God. It is not me. I am not alone. There is redemption. There is a mission. Every part of what we do in here on a Sunday night exists to tell some part of that story over and over again until it becomes our story. It's why we call it a practice. We just keep practicing. And in a world that seems to tell us we're our own gods, that we're islands unto ourselves, that the best things we can do is just be our best selves, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, build a big name for ourselves, fill in the blank, etc., etc. We tell a different story in here. A humbling one for sure, 
but a better story to be certain. There is a God. It is not me. You are not alone. There is redemption for us all, and we have a purpose. And I don't know about you, but it's a story that I need to hear again every week. At minimum. Because this might be the only place I hear it. And eventually I become the stories I hear. So, we've spent weeks now reminding ourselves why we bother doing the things that we do. We've spent time reminding ourselves why we bother doing this. It takes our time. It takes our energy. It takes our money and our love and our attention to keep showing up and keep acting out this five-act play over and over again. But I believe, and I hope you believe, that it is the story that ultimately changes everything. It is good news. And it's worth practicing every chance we get. Let's pray.